pastor asked me a couple of weeks ago if I would uh, fill in for him. I said, sure, and I knew he was going through, uh, that y'all been going through a a study of praying like Paul. And so uh, he told me to just go with anything that I wanted to go with because I feel like it's better to leave that to him anyway because I know he's got thicker things that he wants to be brought out. And so I began to pray about it and I began to think about it. And uh, as I was, for, for, uh, for us, what for, uh, what for us to talk, for us to talk about tonight. And this one thing kept popping into my head. And what that was, the thing that kept, kept coming into my head, is who is God? Who do you think God is? Who is God to you? What's your perception of God? Who do you think God is? Because Unfortunately, he's not always what we think that he is. Uh, there's a man named Patrick Morley. Some of you may be familiar with him. He started a ministry called Man in the Mirror Ministries. And he wrote several books. And one of those books was Seven Seasons for the Man in the Mirror. It's a men's focused ministry. And one of the quotes he has in one of those books, I never will, I've always remembered, and I thought was a great way to lead in tonight. This is his quote. He says, There is a God we want and there is a God who is. They are not the same God. There is a God that we want, a God we desire, a God we want to be, and then there is the God who is, and they are not the same. And that, that stuck with me, and so I, I was thinking about, and leading into this week, is I wanted to talk about the God who is. Because I'm, a, I'm fearful that in our churches, especially in America, We have forgotten who God is. We have taken him and many times made him into something that he is not. And that is not the God of the Bible. And what I want us to look at tonight is the God of the Bible, who God truly is. Um, I ran across this survey to give an example of of, uh, what I was talking, what I wanted to talk about tonight and what I was just talking about there. In uh, 2022, the Gospel Coalition ran a survey and the survey was the statement of the state of theology, what evangelicals believe in America in 2022. And as I read through it and saw the result, it was very startling to me. These are people that claim to know Christ, all right, that they did the survey through. I want you to listen to this. In the survey they did, 73% agree with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Did you hear that? These are evangelicals, people that claim to be believers in Christ. 73% of them agree that Jesus is the first and greatest king being created by God. Listen to this. More than half believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They believe that he accepts all of those uh, religions as equal. More than half agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. I think that's pretty obvious. We've seen that as we've come out of COVID. We've seen this become very easy for people to just stay home and watch online. And and, and that's very sad to me because because of what they just the harm it does to them, much less. Not, not, not having the dedication. More than half 
disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. It's only the big ones that deserve eternal damnation. More than one in four, almost half, disagree that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. Almost half say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. These are, remember, these are church, <laughs> these are evangelical church members that took this survey. And finally, almost one-third agreed with the statement that God learns and adapts to different circumstances, while only 43% disagree. Let that sink in. And let me remind you, there is a God that people want, and there is the God that is. And they are not the same. We see these, in these people that they have a profound misunderstanding of who God is. All right? They have a profound misunderstanding about the very nature of God. As I said before, we have forgotten who he is. There is that we have forgotten that God is God and we are us. He is the creator and almighty. We are the creation and, and underneath him and his servants to him. Uh, I read this thing this past week by Sam Storms, which I thought was uh, pretty good. He talked about that God is a God. He is, God is a God of goodness. He is a good God. In fact, he defines good. God, whatever good is, God is. Or whatever God is, good is. He is a God of goodness. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is a God of patience. He is a God that is holy. And he is a God of peace, but he is also a God of, right, a God of righteousness and jealousy and wrath. We don't like to talk about the wrath part. <laughs> People always want to avoid. You don't hear much preaching about the wrath of God, and I'm not going to dwell on that tonight, but I wanted to put that in. We have to remember he is a jealous God, and he is a God of wrath. And it, I shudder to even think about God being a God of wrath, and, and I'm not even worried about falling under his wrath, as, if, as if, if you know him, you're not either. But still, when I think about it, it's, it's a very, uh, very scary thing. Sam Storm said this. He said, so do you worship and serve a great God or a tiny God, a pygmy God, a diminutive deity, a wee little God who easily fits in your back pocket or in a box of your own making, a so-called God who is unsure of himself and can't guarantee that anything he desires to accomplish will ever ultimately come to pass. A God that fits nicely and neatly into our comfortable preconceived notions or determinations to the point that the God who really is and his true nature are so far removed from the truth that we can't perceive him at all. Think about that. These are folks that, are, that say they're Christian. I'm not saying they're not. I don't know the, state of the states of their heart. But I do know this. They seriously, seriously misunderstand who God is. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. So, how do we know about God? What teaches us about God? How do we get information about who God is? Okay. 
primarily through his word. Uh, the The vast amount of it is through his word. And we need to read his word and we need to humble ourselves and return to the reality that God has clearly revealed who he is and has not changed. He's still the same. He's still the same God. And so when I got to thinking about this, I wanted to run through a few things uh, talking about who God is. Then I wanted to look at one final thing, and I wanted us to go to John chapter 17 and see what God desires for us, what he wants from us. And we see that in in Jesus' great intercessory prayer, which we're going to look at in a few minutes. Have any of you ever done a study of the names of God in the Old Testament, Old Testament names of God? If you have not, I would encourage you to do that because those Old Testament names of God tell us, very, a very, tell us much about who God is. And I want to go through some of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but I want to go through some of the main ones. Now, as I go through these, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce all of them right, but here's the rule. The one that teaches gets to pronounce it the way they want to. <laughs> but I'm not a student of Hebrew. I don't know how to pronounce all the names, but I think I got most of them right. But I want to go through some of the Old Testament names of God, and I'm going to give you a scripture reference. If you want to write it down, you can look it up and see how that name is used. The first one, the primary names, what's the primary name of God in the Old Testament? Who could tell me? Yahweh, Jehovah, as we know it better by. There's also another one, another primary name in the Old Testament. You know what it is? Well, Jehovah's the one we just said, Yahweh. Yahweh and Jehovah are the same, yeah, yeah. The other one is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, The name Jehovah literally means the self-existent one. This is the one who told Moses, when Moses, he had told Moses to go deliver his people, deliver to rescue his people from Egypt, and Moses said, who will I tell them sent me? They're going to ask who's sending me. And, and uh, 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 God tells him, you tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. That's the meaning of Jehovah. And what that emphasizes is God's holiness, his hatred of sin, and his love of the sinner. His hatred of sin and yet his love for sinners. But he is a holy God. I wish we could take time to, to spend a lot of time on all these, but that's not really what I want to get to in the end. The word, uh, the name Elohim means literally the strong one who needs nothing. The strong one who needs nothing. There's another primary name in the Old Testament. It's Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, which means literally Lord. It means that he is the master and all others are his servants. He is Lord and Master, and all others are his servants. But not only those, then we get to some other really beautiful names. And and they're called compound names. They're names put together with other names. Yes, ma'am? Hmm? Yeah, right. We're going to get to that. Yeah, that's one of the ones we're going to get to in just a minute. That's right. So here's some of the the compound Old Testament names with Jehovah. The first one is, and you, many of you are going to be familiar with this, is Jehovah Jireh. Can anybody tell me what Jireh, Jehovah Jireh means? Yes, yeah, the Lord will provide. The Lord provides. You can find that where it's first used in Genesis chapter 22, verses 13 and 14. It literally means he, will, he is our source for everything. 
God is the source for every need. It all comes from him. Another compound name in the Old Testament is Jehovah Nisi. Does anybody know what Jehovah Nisi means? N-I-S-S-I? It means the Lord is my banner. It's really interesting because the picture where that's taken from is when Moses, I believe, was, they, were, they were battling against Amalek. And you remember Moses was standing up and holding up his arms because whenever he held his arms up, they would, be, they would win the battles. But his arms started getting tired, so what happened? Joshua came and held his arms up for him so that they would continue to win in battle. And that's where the, the figure comes from. It, it, the Lord is my banner. He is my rallying point. The Lord is Jehovah Nisi. God is my rallying point. God is my flag. It's like the old war movies you see when uh, the guy that's carrying the flag gets shot down and somebody else runs over there and picks it up and starts carrying it because they continue to rally around the flag. That's Jehovah Nisi. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. The God of, okay, God of victory. Yeah, okay. All right, another one is Jehovah Shammah. And that means the Lord who is present. We are never alone. God is always with us. Aren't those beautiful names? I would encourage you to learn them and even pray with those names sometimes. Pray to him by those names. Another one is Jehovah Ra'al, which is the Lord our shepherd. That is the name that we derive from Psalm 23. Most of you are familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is Jehovah Ra'al. Another one is Jehovah El Gamala. I think I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> El Gamala, which is the Lord God of recompense. This is from Jeremiah 51, 56. He is a God of vengeance, and vengeance is his. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That is what that name means. Another one is Jehovah Nake, N-A-K-E-H. It is the Lord who smites, the Lord who strikes. That is from Ezekiel 7, 9. The Lord fights for us. He fights for his people. Another one is Jehovah Makadeshim, is the Lord who sanctifies. God is the one that declares holy. He declares what is and who is holy. Another is Jehovah Zidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. God makes us right. Another is Jehovah Sabaoth, which is the Lord of hosts. Now this is a military term. And it literally means that he commands all the armies of heaven and all the armies of, her, of earth are under his command. He controls all things. He is the Lord of hosts. And finally, the last compound name that I have for Jehovah is Jehovah Shalom. I think y'all know probably what that means. The Lord is our peace. And what it means is, it doesn't mean the Lord gives us peace. He is our peace. Jehovah Shalom. He is our peace. Okay, just quickly, let me run through a few that come with Elohim. Some of these are some of my favorites. The first one is El Elyon, E-L-Y-O-N. That's in Isaiah chapter 14. It means literally the most high, the strongest of the strong. Is what El Elyon means. Another one is El Roi, R-O-I. That is the strong one who sees. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden 
from his sight. There's El Olam, the everlasting God, Isaiah 40, verse 28. He has no beginning. He has no end. He never changes. He's constant. That is El Olam. And then finally, we get to what we talked about just a while ago, one of our, one of our favorites, El Shaddai, which literally means God Almighty. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Is there anything too difficult for God? He's the overpower, He's the all-overpowering one. Nothing is impossible. Those are just some of the names of God in the Old Testament. I would, enc- I would encourage you to learn those. Do a study. There are several good books that have been written about studying the names of God. But the Bi- what, what we see in the Bible, the God of the Bible, which is different from the God that we read about just a, minute, just a few minutes ago, the Bible, the Bible declares a great God who controls and engineers all things. Do you truly believe that? Because I'm going to be honest with you, I believe it, but I don't always live that way. And I'm afraid that we're all probably guilty of that sometimes. We know God controls all things. We know He engineers all circumstances. Nothing. God never goes, oops, I missed that. <laughs> He's never surprised by anything. Uh, I, mean, I had a youth pastor one time who used to always, uh, always say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? I thought it was a great line. God never goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. He knows, he knows even before it ever happens, God knows. He controls and engineers all things. But y'all, that's not the best. Those are all great and awesome. But see, that's not the best part. You know what the best part is? Let me tell you. This is what is truly incomprehensible about God. This great, awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, fearful, and holy God can be and and indeed desires to be known. Think about that. Think about all these names of God that we just went through and His majesty and His glory and His holiness and His impeccability and His immutability, His omniscience and omnipresence and all of those things He wants us to know him. Think about that. Isn't that awesome? Why? Why does he want us to know? I've never figured out why God wanted me to know him. I've never figured out why he loves me. I can understand him loving some other people I've met, but I've never figured out why he loves me. But when I see myself for what I am and I see my sin, he is a knowable God. Isn't that great? He's a knowable God. And the way that we know him is one last name I want to give to you. And that is the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the New Testament, the, the, the New Testament name of God, all right? And I, that's what I want us to look at. I want us to go to John chapter 17, because this is so, it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. I know probably all of you, or at least most of you, have read it before. But it's just such a, a, a beautiful thing. It's Jesus praying for his people. Uh, what's going on here is we're getting, Jesus is getting very close to the cross. He's fixing to go to the cross. He's had this last time with his, his disciples, and they have met, and they've shared the Lord's Supper, and he's talked to them, and he's given them instructions, and he's told them what's coming, 
And he's, he, he's now going to the Father and praying for them. It's called the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, this, was what, this would probably be what you would truly call the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer is more correctly called the Disciples' Prayer because he's teaching them how to pray. This is more truly the Lord's Prayer. And it's John chapter 17. And what I want us to see here is what Jesus desires for us. He's praying for his desire for his people. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, It's going to take about three minutes. I've already practiced it. (laughs) You know, that's a remarkable thing about prayers in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed. It's how remarkably short they are. Have you ever noticed that? The longest prayer in the Bible is in Nehemiah, I think, chapter 9, where all the elders are praying. And it's, uh, it's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, and it can be read with feeling in less than seven minutes. The longest prayer in the Bible. Yeah, it, 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 goes, it points to what Jesus was talking about, how people love to stand up and pray these long prayers and everything. And it was, God wasn't hearing it. It was a waste of time. You know, uh, it, it, I, I just find that fascinating. And we see here, Jesus, this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer. Uh, especially, we know he prayed longer than this, but it's the only one we know what he said. We know here what he said. And I want you to listen to it. It's, it's really beautiful. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are, they were, and you gave them to me. And now they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. You have, is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may all, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them." If that's not the most beautiful passage of Scripture, I don't, I don't, there may be one that's better, I don't know. But <laughs> Jesus praying for his people. Now we'll just look at that in the time that we have left here. Jesus Christ, of course, the Son of God. This is his great high priestly prayer. So, don't you think that in this prayer, the longest recorded of Jesus in the Bible, the last prayer recorded of Jesus in the Bible, except what he said on the cross, don't you think that what he said here would be really important? Don't you think that he would be pointing to what his greatest desire was? I want us to look at that for a few minutes. What does he pray for and for who? First of all, we see in verses 1 through 5, he's praying for himself, that he will be glorified and that the Father will glorify him and the world will know that he sent him. Then in verses 6 through 19, He's praying for his apostles, the ones that are there with him, that are going to be the leaders. He's praying for the leaders that are going to be going out and taking the gospel out. He's not going to be anymore here anymore physically. It's going to go out through them, through the Spirit. And then notice lastly, in verses 20 through 26, who's he praying for there? Us. He's praying for you. 2,000 years ago, he prayed for you. He prayed those who would hear him, those who would come to him through the word that they heard, through the word the apostles spread. That is talking about everyone since then that has come to know Christ. He was praying for you. Doesn't it just give you chills to know that in that moment he was praying for you? He was praying for us. So, what was Jesus' desire for us? Was it a life of wealth? Was he praying for our wealth? Was he praying for our health? Was he praying that we would have no trials? Was he praying that we would have no hardships? Was he praying that we would have no pain? On and on and on. What did he pray for? That we would know his Father and him. That we would know him. You see, y'all, this great God that we talked about and read the names of, he wants us to know him. He desired, and I don't, I'm not talking about know of him. There are many, many, many thousands of people, millions, that know about God that do not know him. I fear that many of our churches are full of people that know about God and don't know him. And, and one of the reasons is, is because of that little God that we have made him out to be. 
He is God Almighty. Jesus prays that we would know him and know his Father, not just to have knowledge of him, but to know him. And what he means there is he wants us to have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with a loving Father. A deep, personal relationship. Intimate, which means pertaining to the inmost character of a thing. Pertaining to the inmost character. Our relationship with God, if you know God, if you know Christ, our relationship with Him is a romance. Now please understand, I'm not talking about romance in the way we particularly we typically think of it. I'm talking about it is a romance, it is a romantic type of relationship that is full of or dominated by thoughts, dominated by feelings, dominated by attitudes, and dominated by passion. It is a romantic type relationship that we have with him. Why do you think we're called the bride of Christ? <laughs> he, is, he is the groom. We are the bride. We are being brought together. It is a, it is a ro- you know, it's like, it's like reading through Solomon's song. You read through there and you see the great romance that's all through the book. Of course, Solomon's not talking about our relationship with Christ, but it's the same thought. It's our, it's our relationship with him. And he wants us to literally be one with him. Now, what he means by one there is not talking about, he's talking about being united, that all the children of God will be united, will be in unity in the truth. Did you notice how many times Jesus talked about being in the truth, that they will know you and what the truth was and, uh, and what eternal life was, that they may know you. Being united in the truth which means being united in the gospel. Christians are always going to be divided over things that may or may not be important. Some things we get caught up in and argue over are just ridiculous that we get caught up in them. But we must be united on the essentials of everything. And that's what Christ is talking about, that we would be united in the gospel, in the truth, and taking the gospel out that we may all be one with the Father, Son, with the Spirit, and with one another. That we're all one together. And by the way, do you know that's not the last time Jesus prayed for you? He's still praying for you. He is now. Jesus, I read this one time, and it just really hit me when I read it. Jesus was our Redeemer once. He has been our high priest and advocate before the Father for over 2,000 years and continues to be. He is praying for you now. He intercedes to the Father constantly on your behalf. He intercedes for us. Isn't that beautiful? That Christ is in heaven right now before the Father at the right hand interceding for his people, praying for you, praying to strengthen you, praying that you will have courage, praying that you will trust him, praying that you will take the gospel out, praying that you will do all of these things. He prays that we'll all be one with the Father, Spirit, and one another. Only the God who is can truly give us the desire of our hearts. Only the God who is can satisfy the desire of your heart. The God that we may want, that others may want, might give us some temporary thrills. He might give us some blessings. 
He might give us some happiness temporarily here, here, there. But only the God who is can give us the only thing worth having himself. God wants us to have him. He's the only thing that will satisfy. That is the God of the Bible. All of these other things. And and kind of bringing this to a close, let me go back and finish the Patrick Morley quote I gave you at the first, because that's not the whole quote that he gave. I'm going to read the first part, then I'm going to read the second part. There is a God we want, and there is a God who is. They are not the same God. Then he added, the turning point of our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and we start seeking the God who is. So my question for you today, which one are you after? Which God are you seeking today? Are you seeking a God that will only give you the temporary things? Are you seeking a God that may give you a little warm fuzzy here in, in Are you seeking a God that will fix all of your problems? (laughs) Are you seeking a God that will give you all the financial things that you need? Are you seeking a God that will give you perfect health all the time? Are you seeking a God that will uh, intercede in every problem? Or are you seeking the God that is? Here's what we need to remember about God. God can do anything. Wouldn't you agree? He can do anything that stays true to his character. He will never do anything outside of his character. It's impossible for him to do that. But he can do anything, but many times he doesn't. He doesn't always do the thing we wish he would do. And there's a reason for that. You know what it is? It's not best for you. Many times the things that we think are good may be good and perfectly fine, but they're not the best. I read one time, I think it was Oswald Chambers that said, the biggest enemy of the best is the good that's not good enough. (laughs) God doesn't want us to have the good. He wants us to have the best. The absolute best. And the God who is, is the only one that can give us that. Okay. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time together. Lord, I thank you that You are the God who is, and you will settle for nothing less. We come to you on your terms, Lord. And I'm thankful for that, Lord, because it's the only way we're ever going to have the desire of our heart is coming to you on your terms. We're thankful that you are all of these great Old Testament names, Lord. And I pray again, I I encourage these folks in here to learn those names, Lord, to pray to you sometimes in those names, because it really brings it home to whatever we may be going through. So, Lord, I I thank you for all of that. I thank you for that everything we need, Lord, is found in your word and is found in you. And, Father, I, I just pray that we'll remember what Jesus has called us to do and what his desire for us was, was to, above all else, Lord, was to truly know you. And, Lord, I pray for that in my life, that I would continue to strive to know you. Help me to have the strength, Lord, in the and the, uh, the, the stamina to stay with it, Father, to not be discouraged, to just strive to know you and to realize that you are always there and you're always seeking my best, just as you are for everyone else here, because you are the best. We thank you, Lord. And I pray for everyone as they leave here tonight, Lord, that you get them home safely. And Lord, that they would just 
they would just strive to know you as well. And bring us all back together Sunday. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.